Now stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, We are in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months, and seasons, and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Father in heaven, we thank you for every word of Scripture that is inspired by the Spirit of God, given for our instruction. And we thank you for this letter to the Galatians that is is rich with instruction for us, we ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit that the words of this passage would be applied to our hearts in an impactful way, that this word would remain with us and that it would help shape our thinking and our behavior, uh, our faith convictions, and it would increase our hope in Christ. And we pray in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, in this church, we often talk about growing in the Christian life. It's a common prayer for growth, spiritual growth. We know that God's word commands us as disciples to grow and bear fruit. That's what Jesus talks about as uh, who those disciples are. They're going to be those who bear fruit, those who love. Now, in many cases, when we talk about growth, we have in mind growing in holiness or growing in obedience to the commandments of God. And of course, this is an essential aspect of Christian growth. There's another aspect of growth, though, that we sometimes perhaps neglect to think about or remember, and that aspect of Christian growth is growing in our apprehension of God's love for us. We actually need to grow in appreciating the gospel. The gospel should never become old to us or boring to us or something that we move beyond. If, if there's something unexciting about the gospel, the problem lies with us. We have a spiritual perception problem if we find the gospel uninteresting or something that we move beyond. Far from it. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 as he addressed the, his letter to the Ephesians, his prayer was that they would apprehend 
the greatness of the riches that they have in Christ. And here's, here's a portion of that prayer that Paul prayed. He said, he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, what was Paul's prayer focused upon here? It was focused upon the apprehension, the understanding of God's great power worked out in the salvation that Jesus Christ had brought. Paul wanted them to know their inheritance, what they had received in Christ. And it was going to take the power of God to give them eyes to see and appreciate this inheritance. Now that prayer of Paul is really my prayer for us as we come to this passage in Galatians, that we would grasp the greatness of our inheritance. The promises of the gospel are so vast that without spiritual eyes to see it, we won't really appreciate it. And so kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, we need to grow in understanding how much God loves us as his children. It makes such a difference in the Christian life if we know the love of God, if we experience it by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then we think about it, we meditate upon it. It it helps us so much to know the love of God. And, And we see God's love revealed, particularly in the truth that this passage sets forth, which is the truth of adoption, that we are the children of God. And for the Galatians, this was very important to understand because they were turning back, Paul said, to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. And we'll define what that is here in, in, a, in a few moments. But they were turning from the glad tidings of the gospel to something that was of very little value. In fact, something that was actually dangerous for them. They were exchanging the good news of the gospel for the shoddy, useless substitute that had been brought to them by these false teachers. And if I was just to illustrate it in economic terms, it would be like having $10 million in gold and then trading that for one Federal Reserve note, $1. Which one would you rather have in terms of actual value? You'd keep the gold. You'd keep the $10 million in gold. And of course, this falls short in illustrating the riches of the gospel in comparison with this false teaching. But that was the thing that they were doing. They were taking something of great value and just trading it for something of very little value. And so that is why Paul points them to this inheritance, their adoption. He wants them to know, you're children of God. You have this great inheritance. Why would you leave that behind for this? We need to therefore understand our adoption as well. We need to grasp these things. John, in in 1 John 3, he, he says these words about our adoption. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, behold is a command, right? It says, pay attention to this. Look at this. Look at this great, amazing painting of God's love revealed in adoption and just behold it and marvel at it. And so that's what we need to do as well. If we behold our adoption, if we behold the love of God, if we know our inheritance, then we will be protected from these same kinds of spiritual maladies that the Galatians were dealing with. 
Now let's review briefly what was happening in the church of Galatia so we understand what Paul is speaking against, what the background of this is. And I do think that Acts chapter 15 verse 1 gives us something of a summary of the kind of thing that was being said in the Galatian churches. This isn't actually from Galatians, but it is seems to be lined up quite well with what they were experiencing. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 we read, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a very brief summary of the kinds of things that were being taught. And, and I think Galatians has the very same idea going on in the background. They were imposing this requirement of circumcision upon everybody, the Gentile believers. In addition to that, we know that there were other ritual observances that they wanted to add to the list. They were saying, if you're going to be a, a child of God and part of this covenant promises made to Abraham, you're going to have to be circumcised and we're going to add some other rituals to this. We're going to add the feast days, perhaps the food laws. And we're going to impose all these things upon any believer that comes, particularly the Gentiles that would come into the church. So for Paul, he's going to set things straight, not only about the law of God and its purpose, but also the truth of what the gospel reveals, what Jesus Christ came to do. But the way in which he clarifies the law, he, he told us last a few weeks ago in, in chapter 3, he says that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. We, we explained how that, that word tutor could also be translated guardian, and the law then was a teacher for us, and it kept us under bondage to some degree, as Paul says, for those that were under the old covenant. And, and we see how the law was a good teacher. It wasn't a good savior, but it was a good teacher. Every time a blood sacrifice was offered, what did it declare to God's people? You are a sinner. You need a savior. And so Paul says the law is a tutor, but he also wants to make sure that the Galatians do not use the law as a means of right standing with God. He says the second you do that, the second you put your trust in the law and any act of obedience, no matter how big, no matter how little, you're cursed because you cannot keep this law perfectly. So those are a few things that Paul clarifies about the law. But now we go to a, a, an extended illustration in verses 1 through 2. And that's what we're going to look at first is this illustration that Paul gives. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. This illustration is an extension of the one we had in chapter 3. You remember there, he says, that uh, we were as children under a guardian, and that guardian uh, was there only for a certain period of time until the child reached maturity. And this is a similar illustration. He says there's this child, and this child is, is the inheritor of a vast estate. Let's say they're going to get all this land. And they're not going to receive that inheritance until they reach a point of maturity. And so what would happen in these situations is that this young man, perhaps, would have these guardians and stewards that would be taking care of him. And he wouldn't have total control over this estate. He wouldn't come into control of it until he was a certain age. And in some ancient cultures, inheritances were sometimes bestowed only at death. But in other cases, portions of an inheritance could be given at a certain age. 
We have something similar in our modern day when we have this establishment of a trust. Sometimes a a grandparent will establish a trust and they'll store wealth there and that wealth may build, but they won't let that trust will not be available. The wealth will not come to the children or the grandchildren until the grandparent dies or until the child reaches a certain age. They will not have access to what is in that trust. Now, going back to Paul's picture, he's saying this is what was happening with God's people under the old covenant. They were under this uh, guardians and stewards, but they were going to receive a great inheritance. But they had to wait. And while they were under those guardians and stewards, they were kind of like slaves. He says they weren't actually slaves because they were children. But it was as if they were uh, in bondage to these things. They were required to submit to certain things. They didn't have the same degree of freedom. that they have now that they are in the time of maturity. So now that Paul's given the illustration, now he connects it. And then he says in verse 3, he talks about we, the the readers of the letter, particularly the Galatians, first of all. Look at verse 3. He says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What is Paul referring to here? He's not talking about just one person. He's not even talking just about the Galatian churches. He's making a larger historical contrast for God's people. He's saying back in the time of immaturity, God's people were under these elements of the world. And now, in the fullness of time, they're not under those elements of the world any longer. You see the historical contrast if you look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So I believe Paul is making what we call a historical contrast. He says, here's God's people in the season of immaturity. Now they're growing up, and that has implications for how we understand the law, how we understand obedience, how we understand faith. So that leads us to the question uh, that is a difficult question to answer, and that is, what does this phrase, the elements of the world, mean? He doesn't exactly explain it or define it for us, but it appears twice in this letter. In In the passage we read, it appears in Colossians as well. What does this phrase mean? We need to understand this phrase if we're going to grasp Paul's point. Because he says, that's what we were under. We were under these elements of the world. Now we're not anymore. So it's very important that we know what were we under before Christ. And now in Christ, what's, what's the difference? Well, you'll find this, this phrase translated in different ways. There's elements of the world is one translation. You'll find some translations say the elementary principles of the world. Others will say the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Well, there's a number of different options there, so which one is correct? Well, let me give you three options, and then I want to explain to you what is it that Paul is saying, and then we will bring this to a point of application for us. The word elements here can be translated uh, as elements, meaning physical, tangible elements. There's an example of this in 2 Peter 3, when Peter says that the elements will burn in the second coming. So that that is clearly a reference to physical elements. Think about water and grass and dirt, uh, the things that constitute our physical creation. Secondly, the word can refer to elements in the sense of elementary principles or uh, rudimentary principles, like the first principles of a subject. 
And this, this particular use is uh, found in Hebrews 5. The author says, you need someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the word of God. So that's very clearly the definition there. Third option is that it refers to elemental spirits, spiritual forces. Now, we, we don't necessarily find this use in the New Testament, but the Greeks would use the word this way because they often associated deities, false gods, with physical elements. And so they would use this phrase to talk about spiritual forces. So what's the right use? The, 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 what is the use that Paul is bringing to our attention here? Well, I believe the second meaning, as in elementary principles, is probably the best uh, definition, more or less, of how this phrase is being used. And if you look at Galatians 4, 8 through 11, I think we'll see this demonstrated. He says, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And then he says what sort of things they were doing to be in bondage. He says, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And Paul concludes from this that he may have labored in vain. So there's something apparently very wrong for them to be going back to days and months and seasons and years. That appears to be at least part of the issue at stake here. And so it seems that his concern is that they're turning back to these ritual requirements of the law of God, perhaps with a bunch of human traditions added to it. And he says, you're going back to these old ways. And he says, even when you were in pagan religion, for many of the Gentiles who had never had contact with Judaism, he says, that's what it was like in pagan religion. It was just all these externals, all these rituals, all these observances. It was highly external. Pagan religions have their external rudimentary principles. All pagan religion is basically like that in some way or another. It's highly externalistic. And while the old covenant, the old Mosaic law was divinely inspired by God, it did have an external component that was particularly emphasized. They were indeed teaching tools that were meant to point us to Christ. But the problem, of course, was that Human traditions had been added to these commandments. Many different human traditions had been added by the Pharisees and others. And it was very wrong to use the law of God as a means of currying favor with God, as if they could do this or that, and God would declare them righteous. That was a completely wrong way to use the law of God. The law was not meant to be used that way. It was meant to point to Jesus. It, it condemned them in their sins. It pointed them to a Savior, and then they needed to look to the Savior to come. That's always how God's people were saved. So we see that definition uh, in Galatians 4. Let me direct your attention also to Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. This is a very helpful passage in defining for us what are the elements of the world. Now here, here Paul says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles, that translation is the same phrase, basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." So this may be the best uh, 
collective definition of the basic elements of the world that Paul is concerned about, it involved a lot of external things. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle these things. It involved the traditions of men, and it did not help sanctify anybody, it says. It was just externalistic. It did not actually change men's hearts. That's all it could do. And so it's, it's a little hard to get our, our hands around this phrase, but if I'm to, to, to list all the things that go into it, it is a combination of Old Testament rituals added with the traditions of men, mixed with a little bit of pagan religion, perhaps, and you mix all that up and you get the elements of the world. And Paul says, don't turn back to these things. And children, this is the second point in your notes. And this definition that I gave, I I reviewed it just a little while ago, and I thought, this isn't quite a sufficient definition. It needs a little bit more, but I was trying to boil it down, so we'll start with what I wrote down. Number two, the elements of the world are the various external rituals, sometimes taken from the Old Testament, sometimes taken from pagan religion, and I would add, with human tradition, mixed in. It was all these things mixed together. Now, when we talk about externals, children, we're talking about what's on the outside, right? The heart is that part of you that we can't see, but your externals are your hands and your skin and your eyes and all these external physical things that the Judaizers were emphasizing. They were saying it's all about these external things. This is what man-made religion tends to do. It gravitates to the external checklists. And so it was a misuse of the law of God to use the law in this way. But it is true that the old covenant rituals did have a rudimentary teaching component to them. And we we know how this works when children are in a state of of immaturity when they're younger. We often do, as teaching tools, we use uh, concrete things, right? It's harder to communicate to children very abstract points, but if you can give it to them in concrete terms or visual terms, it helps them to grasp it. For example, you're teaching your children math when you first get started. Sometimes you use these manipulatives, these little blocks, and if you want to help your child understand how do we count to 10, 2 plus 8 equals 10, well, they start with their two blocks, then they get their eight blocks, and they put them together, and then they count all of them up, and there you are, 10, 10 is the answer. Well, in a way, the law of God was like that under the Old Covenant. It had all of these pictures for the people of God. It had all these rituals, cleansing rituals, sacrifices, feasts. All of these things were valuable teaching tools to help them see, in a shadowy way, the Savior to come. Rituals like circumcision visually illustrated that God's people needed cleansing from sin. They needed to be separated from an unholy world. The feast days, they were reminders of God's redemption and provision for his people. They were good visual illustrations as the people of God sat in the Feast of Tabernacles and they sat in their, their Sukkoth, their tabernacles. They were remembering the wilderness wanderings and God's provision for them. Uh, the rituals of sacrifice, of course, showed the need for cleansing from sin. And so in all these ways, the elementary principles of the law, insofar as they were used rightly, were valuable teaching tools for God's people. But Paul says, we've we've moved beyond them because the substance belongs to Christ. That's what he says in Colossians as well. The substance of all those shadows belongs to Christ. 
And so, going back to Paul's illustration, he says, kids grow up, they reach a point of maturity, and they move beyond rudimentary principles. But the Galatians were going to go back to rudimentary principles. They were going to go back to all these external checklists. They were going to forget what Jesus had done to, to save them from their sins, and it was going to be all about these checklists. So Philip Ryken, he gave a good comment on this in terms of what the Galatians were facing. He says, those Judaizers had been telling the Galatians that the law was a graduate school for the gospel. So as if they moved beyond the gospel. But Paul insisted that being under the law was actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. For the Galatians to go back to the law would be like a PhD repeating kindergarten to work on his alphabet. If they wanted to be spiritual grown-ups, they would have to advance beyond the law, the law used in this wrong sense. And so, brothers and sisters, the implication of all of this, as we've surveyed the meaning of this phrase, we need to remember that what Galatians is about is about freedom. Galatians 5, Paul's going to say, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of bondage. And so, he's defending our liberty in Christ, And it's important then that we rightly understand the right and wrong uses of the law of God. And Paul warns us to be on guard against these externalistic systems. And be aware that there is a tendency of fallen humanity to gravitate back to these externalistic systems. To the neglect of the heart. You just let people make up religion on their own, what are they going to get? They're going to neglect the heart, they're going to focus upon the externals because it's a whole lot easier because we can't cleanse the heart ourselves. Only Jesus can cleanse the heart. And so man-made religion is all about external conformities. Just look at Islam and its five pillars of obedience. On one hand, it's very easy to be a Muslim, but on the other hand, it's very hard because you're not sure whether you've ever done enough. But if you just do the five pillars, they say, well, that's, that's about it. That's all you've got to do. It's pretty simple, pretty formulaic. You pray a certain amount of times a day, face Mecca, make it to Mecca at least once in your life, and all the other aspects of Muslim obedience. We see this in the cults. They, they tend to gravitate to externalisms as well. Mormonism has all different kinds of externalisms that it focuses upon. And we are not immune to this problem, this spiritual malady, this this externalistic uh, approach to the Christian life. We too can make a man-made, self-made religion that can look pretty good on the outside, but potentially you could have dead men's bones and tombs on the inside. Jesus warns against this. And so we need to be on guard against self-made religion. We need to be on guard against turning the Christian faith into a checklist of a thousand externals and conformities rather than a spirit-produced life of faith in Christ and love for God. That's what we want. If, If you want two things rather than a thousand things, we want faith in Christ, love for God. You can throw hope in there as well, since those are really important. But a thousand external conformities, what good is that going to do you? Now, if the thousand manifestations are manifestations of faith and hope and love, praise be to God. We we love external manifestations when they are produced by these real things. And that's why Paul, after uh, condemning these weak and beggarly elements, he's going to go in chapter 5 to say, here's what the Spirit-produced life looks like. It's a beautiful life. It's a life of fruit. It's a life of love. It's a life of obedience to God. But it's not built on the foundation of all these external conformities. 
And so if you have a life built upon external conformities, you're going to find that it is very weak and useless. He says it's weak, it's beggarly, it doesn't help you, it doesn't doesn't save you. And you end up forsaking and forgetting all about the great and glorious gospel of deliverance that Jesus has brought. So after pointing out the danger of these elements of the world, Paul then goes in verses 4 through 5 to present this remarkable summary of the gospel. One of the problems afflicting the Galatian Christians was what I would call gospel amnesia. They were forgetting. They were forgetting what Jesus had done. That's what false teaching tends to do. It leads you away from Jesus, and it's all about this teaching, and Jesus is absent from the picture. And Paul said that in chapter 3, he says, You have been bewitched. These false teachers have cast a spell upon you. You're in a trance. And so he's shaking them with his words, to remind them of the gospel. And that's what he does in verses 4 through 5. This is such a, a valuable summary. It's one of the most helpful summaries in the New Testament. If you want to know, if you want to answer the question for somebody, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and they say, what is the gospel about? Well, there's a lot of verses and summaries you could give. Verses 4 through 5 is an excellent summary of the gospel. Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's what Christ came to do, amongst other things, is to bring us the adoption as sons. Hence how important this doctrine is. Now this is such a a concise but densely packed summary. I, I can't go into everything in it. I wish I could, unless I did many more sermons on it, which I could do. There is so much in verses 4 through 5. We, we have things like the truth of, of Jesus Christ's eternal existence, because it says he came in, came in uh, to the world born of a woman, but he had existed before that, so you can prove that doctrine from this passage. We have uh, this important teaching of uh, the fullness of time, how This was the particularly perfect time that God sent forth his son. All the conditions were right for Jesus to come into the world. God knew when to send his son into the world. But what I want to focus on is the phrase that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's what I want to focus on here. What does it mean to say that Jesus was born under the law? Well, this means that the demands of God's law, both in terms of its moral components, think in terms of the Ten Commandments, as well as all the ritual aspects, were all binding upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to do all of them. And he did all of them perfectly. And kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, Jesus was born as a human being and was required to obey God's law and die in our place to remove the curse of God's law from us. We've learned in Galatians that the law of God curses us because it says that you need to continue in everything it says, and we can't do that. As fallen sinners, it is impossible for any of us to render that kind of obedience to the law. What would happen then if, if there's no, no Savior? Well, we're all cursed. That's what Galatians would tell us. But Jesus has come to do that which was impossible to do for us. The eternal Son of God subjected himself to demands of God's law, and from his birth he walked in those commandments. 
Now consider this. If the only thing Jesus had to do was to come and die on the cross, why did he live for 30 years and do all these other things? Why was that God's design for Jesus? Well, Jesus came not only to satisfy the demands of the law that we had broken, but also to obey the law of God in our stead, the thing that we could not do. We sometimes call this the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And in that phraseology, we, don't, we never separate Christ's obedience, but what we're trying to get at with that phraseology is that not only did Jesus die, uh, passion, his passion, his suffering, that's what passive obedience refers to, but he also actively kept every jot and tittle of the law for us. Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so our Lord, of course, he, he did all of this for us. He, he obeyed the law of God to the full, and he acted in obedience toward his heavenly Father for the entirety of his life. He was our substitute and our representative. And we see this in the Gospels. If you, if you look at certain key events in the Gospels, you can't make sense of them without understanding how Jesus Christ is our representative and our substitute. He is the second Adam. What the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam achieves. Now, look at things like the baptism of Jesus. Why is Jesus baptized in the Gospels? John was confused by this. John the Baptist said, why am I baptizing you? I need you to baptize me. I'm the sinner here. And Jesus says, permit it for now, for this is how we will fulfill all righteousness. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus entering into our experience. He's, he's identifying with his sinful people. He's saying, I'm going to do all of this for my people. I'll submit to baptism, showing forth my, my anointing as the Messiah, as well as my identification with this sinful people. And then after his baptism, what's the first thing that happens in the Gospels? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Adam and Eve, of course, had failed the test when they were tempted by Satan. So Jesus says, okay, I'm going to fix what they messed up. The, the Gospels say that the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. This was not some accident. This was the work of God in his ministry to go out into the wilderness. And whereas Adam and Eve had been tempted in this lush, beautiful garden with a thousand options of food, Jesus faced temptation in the wilderness with no food for 40 days. Where his people for 40 years had failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded for 40 days, not eating anything, obeying the commands of his Father, not giving way to the temptations of the evil one. Now, why do we have all these details in the Gospels? Well, the Gospel writers are driving home the point for us. Jesus is the substitute for you. He has done what you cannot do. And so, therefore, in the gospel, we, we trade our filthy robes for his beautiful robes of righteousness. And the hymn, His Robes for Mine, so well expresses the two different sides of this. It says, His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange, clothed in my sin, Christ suffered beneath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. 
Faultless I stand with righteous works not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. He says that was a daunting law, it says in this hymn, but it's not daunting anymore because Jesus Christ did it. He mastered it in, his, in our stead. And so thanks be to God, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have exchanged those robes. You have taken the robe of Christ, you stand in his righteousness, you stand faultless before the throne of God with works, not your own. And so this leads us then into the truth of adoption, which we must give our attention to now. That's what Paul says the purpose of was that we might receive the adoption as sons. Look at verses 6 through 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now notice the parallel. God not only sends forth His Son... But having sent forth his son, now he sends forth the spirit of his son into the heart of every true believer. And that indwelling spirit of God brings about powerful effects. We'll talk about uh, what the spirit of God does in chapter 5. We'll talk about the spirit-led life, the spirit-filled life of of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5. But right now the focus is upon our adoption. And one of the effects of this spirit working within us is to make us cry out, it says, Abba, Father. Now why is that significant? Why does Paul bring that out, what we cry out uh, here in, in Galatians? Well, we'll see how this fits into his point, but let's think about the language. The word Abba, of course, is the Aramaic term for father. It's a very intimate and familiar term. It's the one that children would use with very great familiarity. Uh, for their earthly father. And of course, the the next word translated father is just the Greek word for father, so Paul repeats it, but he is emphasizing it so that we get a sense of the intimacy and the access that we have by faith to the heavenly father. And why this is important is, is this. As long as we doubt our identity as children of God, we cannot say and cry out with confidence, Abba, Father. And Paul is concerned that the Galatians would have the confidence of this identity. Of course, the false teaching brought that into question. If they had to figure out at some point whether God would be their father by doing this, and then this, and then this, how could they pray with confidence? How could they ask the Father in heaven for anything if they didn't know whether he was favorable towards them? And the idea is this. A child who has a loving earthly father has a certain degree of confidence. The child should know, first of all, that they are indeed children of the Father. And if they are confident in that identity, they know that they can come to their dad and they can ask for something. And dad is not going to say, no, I have no interest, I don't know who you are, go away. The child knows who the father is and the father knows the child and there's a relationship there and the child has confidence in that relationship. The child does not have these, these night sweats every night because they haven't seen their birth certificate in a few days and they're doubting and wondering, am I really my father's child? I haven't been able to look at my birth certificate in a few days. Well, they shouldn't really question that if they have a good relationship and they know who their dad is. They may have never even seen their birth certificate. Children who have the proper sense of security as children, they know who their dad is. 
They're not in constant anxiety as to whether they got switched out at the hospital, whether dad's really their dad, whether they can really call him dad. There's a basic sense of security. And our brother Kevin has often used the log-splitting illustration about obedience, too. This plays in not only to our prayer life, but our question of obedience. When it comes to knowing our adoption, if we have that doctrine rightly configured in our minds, we are not constantly anxious about whether we are children and how much we have to do to stay children. And Kevin would often use the log-splitting illustration, you know, how many logs do I have to split to be your son or to remain your son? And as Kevin has often said, dads don't count logs. We'll never forget that illustration, Kevin, because it it works so well. I've adapted it for my own household, which is how many times, how many times do I have to wash the dishes in order to be your child? Because we don't have log splitting at the Suiza home at this point. And so that could be the question that a child would ask. How many times must I wash the dishes to be your child? And it's a ridiculous question because children do not gain their identity as my children by washing dishes. They are my children. And children wash dishes as part of the home. And so likewise, if we are confident of our adoption as children, then we ought not to have a slave mindset of obedience to our Heavenly Father. We do not obey God to keep our place in his family, always fearing that the next sinful word or action we commit will get us kicked out of the family. We do not obey out of a slavish fear, but out of a love for our Father in heaven who has so loved us. We love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not because we're always afraid of punishment, 1 John says, Uh, perfect fear casts out love, and I think he's primarily talking about the love of God, casting out these fears of punishment and torment. And so we're not fearing those things. We are confident that we have been redeemed from our sins. That's why in 1 John 3 he says we're children of God. We know God's love for us. And so the logic of the gospel is, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It all stems from what God has done for us and the fact that God has adopted us. Now we live as children, beloved children of God. Not live in order to become children of God. Live as the children of God. And so that's the second aspect of uh, of adoption. We have not only this confidence in prayer, but we have this confidence to obey not out of slavish fear, but out of love for the Father. What motivates you, brothers and sisters, as you get up every morning to obey God. Are you afraid of God? Are you afraid of what other people will think of you when you disobey the commandments of God? Or do you love God? If the Spirit of God indwells us, that's what the Spirit is going to produce, is that confidence to pray and joy to obey. And so that brings us also to the the matter of, of confidence in prayer, which we've already spoken about a little bit. But children who know their identity as children have a, have a basic confidence to come and ask their dad for things. And I know there are examples, of course, in human relationships where this is not the case. I know there's people that have had fathers that are either absent or very bad fathers who were not good examples, and thus children sometimes did not feel confidence to come and ask for something. That's very sad when that is the case. But know that as you look at the, the, the Bible's teaching on our Heavenly Father, you are coming to a father with no imperfections, with no darkness, with no sin whatsoever. And so when it comes to saying, our Father in heaven, or crying out, Abba, Father, 
We are to pray with this great degree of confidence. That's why the the verb in Galatians 4 verse 6 is, the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. This isn't a timid prayer. This is a strong prayer. This is a prayer of faith. Dad, Father, help me. Deliver me. Would you give me this, Father? And I appreciate how the Heidelberg Catechism explains the importance of this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. It says, Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? It says, To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. And so if you, if you had a father that you could come to and you could say, Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, I need clothing. These very basic necessities. If you had the confidence to come and ask that, you need to know that the Father in heaven is way, way better than the very best earthly father you could ever imagine. Way better. Infinitely better. That's why Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts like the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Are you confident in this, brothers and sisters? As you pray, as you begin your day, as you say, our Father in heaven, or however you choose, whatever words you choose to address, do you come with that childlike reverence and trust? This is what adoption is meant to to do for us, as we apprehend it, as we understand it, is that we can pray with a confidence that cries out, Abba, Father. To sum it up for the kids, this is point four in your notes. I didn't realize this, this rhymed until I read it a few times. Number four, the truth of adoption gives us joy to obey and confidence to pray to our Father in heaven. That's what adoption should do. It gives you this joyful obedience. You're not f- fearing God in this slavish sense. You just joyfully get up and you say, I want to obey my Father in heaven. He's been so good to me. And I, and I have such confidence to ask God for things because I know what he has done for me in Christ. There's no question about it. So brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of the God declares that you're not a slave. You're a child. You're an heir of God through Christ You are not bound to keep a thousand rituals in order to gain your right standing with God. You have it through Christ. If you belong to Jesus, you are declared righteous in God's sight. If you are united to Jesus, you are an adopted child of God. You have a Father in heaven who loves you very much. You have a Savior who has so loved you as to give up his life for you. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit enabling you to pray to pray with confidence, to help you remember that you have a gracious Father in heaven. And so it's my prayer that this message will be a means by which you and I apprehend the greatness of our inheritance once again. I certainly hope that as we go through Galatians that that is the effect that this letter has upon us. I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened so that you know the riches of the gospel. You know the hope that is yours in Christ. Many in this life would rather have a few fleeting pleasures and a few earthly possessions that quickly fade and perish rather than the inestimable riches that are found in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that none of us in in this congregation would forsake the riches of the gospel for the pitiable, weak, and beggarly elements of the world. 
for the things of this life or for any other false gospel out there because the, the true gospel is so good and it is the only saving gospel. So may it be that as we understand our adoption as sons ministered by the Holy Spirit that we would be firmly grounded in this identity we have and that we would live as the children of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we we come with confidence today because the passage before us reminds us that we are the sons of God through faith. We come in faith thankful that you have sent forth the spirit of your Son into our hearts to give us this confidence to say our Father in heaven. I do pray that you would guard each of us against turning to the elementary principles of the world to man-made religion, to externalisms, to anything that would lead us away from putting our hope in Christ. Grant us also a great confidence in our adoption that we would have the mindset of sons, not slaves. That we would serve the Lord Jesus Christ not out of slavish fear, but out of gratitude and love for our God. And we ask that you would make us to be a church that understands these things and lives in light of them. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.